We appreciate your presence. If you're visiting, we certainly want to invite you to come back. We're grateful for the opportunity that we have to be together tonight. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2. And in our study tonight, I want to talk about for a minute or two, really focus in on the second chapter and think about what it means to be a member of the church. And some have said that Acts chapter 2 is the hub of the Bible. I think it is a very significant chapter in the New Testament because in chapter 2, we read about the establishment of the kingdom of God and those who became members of that kingdom. And so I want to spend some time and talk for a minute or two tonight about what it means to be a member of the Lord's church. And there are a lot of people in the world today, they misunderstand the nature of the church. Sadly, sometimes those of us who belong to the church do not understand the full import of what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. And so tonight I want us to think for a minute or two about this theme. I want to begin by just taking you back to that period of time before Jesus ascended to heaven. And you remember Jesus said in Luke chapter 24 to the apostles, He said, I want you to stay or tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Jesus, throughout His earthly ministry, had been talking about, discussing the kingdom of God. John the Baptist, who was the forerunner to the Christ. And John, as you well know, was a man sent from God, as the Apostle John writes in John chapter 1. John, his work, his purpose was to point people in the direction of Jesus. And so, John, his message, very similar to Jesus, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as you know that when Jesus began His earthly ministry, He said the exact same thing. And so in Luke chapter 24, Jesus instructs His apostles to stay or to tarry in Jerusalem until they are endued with power from on high. The church began 50 days following Passover. Now you know Jesus, of course, was put to death, put to death by... Roman authorities, the Jews had a part in the crucifixion of Jesus. And following his death, 50 days later, the church began. So in Acts chapter 1, in verse 8, here's what Jesus said to the apostles. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then he goes on to say, and to the end of the earth. Jesus, as you well know, spent 40 days following His resurrection, proving that He was, in fact, resurrected from the dead. As a matter of fact, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, that He did so by many infallible proofs. And so, we have the setting. So now we make the transition into chapter 2. Jesus, as I said a moment ago, has already instructed the apostles to tarry in the city of Jerusalem. And so in chapter 2, the Bible says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Now look at verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, 
and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, I believe what occurred on Pentecost Day was a baptismal measure, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The apostles were endowed with miraculous powers. Jesus had already said they were to stay, to tarry in Jerusalem. They did so. The Lord Jesus had told them that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit would come upon them. That is exactly what occurs on Pentecost Day. Now the Bible tells us, look at verse 5. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Now, Luke tells us they began to speak in other tongues. The other tongues that they were speaking in were languages previously unknown to these men. They had not been trained or skilled in these diverse languages. Now, there are people today that will make the claim that they have the ability to speak in quote-unquote tongues. But the ability to speak in tongues is really the ability of the miraculous, isn't it? It is to speak in intelligible languages. It is not jibber-jabber. And so note, if you would, what is said. In verse 6, they heard them speak every man in his own language. In verse 11, they responded by saying, We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What could this mean? This outpouring of the baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit really caught the attention of all who were present in Jerusalem, didn't it? As a result of hearing these people, these men, speaking in other tongues, they wanted to know, okay, what's going on? And so in verse 14, the Bible tells us, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. What Peter is going to do and the other apostles, they're going to go back to Joel. Peter's going to go back to the prophecy given by Joel and talk about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And obviously, that occurred on Pentecost Day. But I want us to drop down and look at verse 22. And for the sake of time, I want us to focus in for a moment or two on the message that was preached. A couple of thoughts here. Number one, the message that was preached was Christ-centered. Everything about this sermon on this day was about the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus, as you well know, was the long-awaited Messiah. The Lord Jesus had been preaching and teaching the kingdom of God, just as John had. That kingdom is now coming to fruition. And so, here's what the Bible says. Peter in the long ago, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. There were no doubt many people who were named Jesus in the first century. But here Jesus is distinguished from other individuals who may have worn this name by the fact that he was from that little town known as Nazareth. And so Peter said he was a man approved or attested by God. How did God authenticate the fact that Jesus was indeed His Son. Well, He tells us, by miracles, wonders, and signs. And listen to what Peter said, which God did through Him, or by Him, in your midst. 
Now, it's a matter of record. You can go back and look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Over and over again, you read of the many signs or miracles that Jesus performed. The word wonders here carries with it the idea of amazement. When people saw the signs produced by Jesus, it left them in awe, didn't it? They marveled. They were left in wonder at what they had seen and what they had heard. The Gospel of John. Seven very specific signs or miracles were performed by Jesus. Now, a miracle is that which is supernatural, isn't it? There are a lot of folks in the world today that will talk about certain things, and they'll say, well, you know, that was a miracle, or that's a miracle. Look, the age of the miraculous, just like the age of speaking in tongues, has long since ceased. Well, how do I know that? Because no one today has the ability, the power to engage in miraculous powers. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul said with reference to tongues, he said, they shall cease. It was a first century phenomena. That day, that, that day has long since passed. The very signs that Jesus performed according to the Lord Himself, according to John in John chapter 5, those signs, those miracles, authenticated His claims of deity, didn't they? Remember He said, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And so they could see Jesus raising the dead, healing the sick, giving sight to those who were blind, restoring the hearing of those who were deaf, cleansing those who were lepers, etc. So Peter said that this Jesus, that He was authenticated by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through Him in your, in your midst, as you yourselves also know. The things that Jesus did in the first century, the work that He performed in Judea and Galilee and other places, they were not isolated incidents. They were events that many people knew about, didn't they? I can just imagine the buzz that followed Jesus wherever He went. You remember when Jesus went to Jericho in the long ago? And uh, the Bible talks about Zacchaeus. And the fact that Zacchaeus climbed up into a sycamore tree to get a glimpse of the, of the Son of God. And then look at verse 23. Peter said, Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. What Peter is saying is that the events that occurred on Calvary, and this would also include the resurrection. God had decreed in the long ago that the remedy for sin would be His Son, Jesus. And so... Before He ever laid the foundation of the world, God had a plan in place. And following the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, that plan was immediately executed. And there was an unfolding of the redemptive work of God through Jesus Christ. God, being omniscient, had foreknowledge to the events that obviously would occur with regard to the death of His Son, as a matter of fact, Peter would tell us in 1 Peter chapter 1 that Jesus was foreordained before the world began, but was manifest in these last times for you. So Jesus, the purpose of Jesus coming to the world, that purpose no doubt revealed over and over again in Scripture. As a matter of fact, if you want one word that would sum up 
the totality of Scripture would be this, redemption or salvation. And so Peter said, him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, listen to what he says, you have taken and by lawless hands have crucified and put to death. Now the Jews, they bore responsibility with regard to the death of Jesus, didn't they? But not only were the Jews involved in the death of Jesus, but the Gentile people, the Romans, they were also the ones that ultimately carried out that execution, didn't they? The Lord Jesus crucified just outside the walls of Jerusalem. And so Peter here says, look, you have, you've taken this man and you have crucified him and put him to death. In verse 24, Peter tells us that the Lord Jesus, the one that we serve, is not still in a grave. But rather, one of the great foundational truths of the New Testament is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Look at verse 24. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always by my face. He is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, my tongue was glad. My flesh will also rest in hope, because you will not leave my soul in Hades nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now in verse 29, Peter cites that great man of God by the name of David. And he points out that the tomb or the sepulcher of David was still present. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried, his tomb is with us to this day. Well, not so with regard to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus had been raised from the dead. And the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Rome, said that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. The resurrection of Christ. Without it, Christianity would be useless, wouldn't it? So now note verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that of the fruit of His body according to the flesh He would raise up the Christ to sit on His throne. Now I said that His message was Christ-centered. The first part of that message focuses on the crucifixion of Christ. The second part of this message focuses on the coronation of Christ. In other words, we're talking now about Jesus functioning as a king. Many, many centuries earlier, David had been told that through his genealogy that one would come forth that would ultimately sit upon his throne back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jesus would occupy not a physical throne, but a spiritual throne. And what Peter is saying is that this Jesus who has been put to death has been raised from the dead and now he has been seated at the right hand of the throne of God and he is occupying the throne of David. So Jesus is a king over a kingdom. You remember in John chapter 18 when Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? Well, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It wasn't a physical entity but rather it was to be a spiritual institution. 
And so in verse 31, Peter said, He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. And you think about the apostles. They would be, as Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, witnesses of Him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. They had first-hand knowledge of the resurrected Christ, didn't they? They had seen Him. They had heard Him. They had touched Him. They knew about the resurrected Christ because they were eyewitnesses. And so in verse 33, Peter would say, Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. Going back to that outpouring of the baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit. In verse 34, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now look at verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When Peter said that God has made Jesus Lord, that means He is to be the ruler, the one who reigns in the hearts and lives of people. He is, as I said a moment ago, King, King Jesus. He reigns over a kingdom. And you remember in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, Paul said that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Peter's affirming that. And Peter is saying that this Jesus whom they had crucified, that He is number one, Lord. Number two, he said, He is the Christ. What does he mean when he says He is the Christ? Well, what, he, what he's simply saying is, he is God's anointed one. The Jews of old had looked for one who would deliver them. They were looking for a Messiah. Well, that Messiah came in the form of Jesus, didn't he? You remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus had a conversation with a woman at Jacob's well? And she would say on that, on that occasion, in that context, she said, she said I know, we know that when the Messiah comes, and what did Jesus say? He said, I, who am speaking to you, am the Messiah. So Jesus was, He is, the Messiah. That's what Peter's saying. Let everyone know that this Jesus, whom you crucified, and that was an indictment, that He is both Lord and Christ. So first, it was a Christ-centered message. Secondly, it was a convicting message. It was a convicting message. Well, how do I know that? Number one, this message was powerful in content. Because look at, verse 30, look at verse 37. Luke tells us, when they heard this, they were cut. Some translations say they were pricked in their heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? When God's Word is preached, and you remember Isaiah in, in the long ago in Isaiah 55, said God's Word will not return to Him void. There is power in the Word of God, isn't there? 
That's why Paul said, preach the Word. Because God's Word has the power, has the ability to change the hearts and lives of people. You remember in Romans 1.16, when the Apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. What about the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, when he said that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God's Word has the ability to penetrate the hearts of people, doesn't it? It has, as we say, it has some fire. It, has, it packs a punch. So when these people who were assembled in the city of Jerusalem on Pentecost Day and they're hearing the gospel in its fullness for the very first time, when they hear this message, the Bible says they are cut to the heart. Sometimes I have people, I have people say, you stepped on my toes. Well, really, I'm not aiming at your toes. I'm aiming at your heart. I mean, that's the goal is to penetrate the heart. And so these folks were convicted because it was a powerful message. It was a message that packed a punch. Not only was it a powerful message, but it was a pardoning message. They asked the question, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now you think about it. They have been indicted by the apostles as having crucified the very Son of God. Can you imagine? You've just heard the gospel in all of its fullness. And you have, you have been indicted. You are convicted. You recognize, you know what? I had a part in the death of the very Son of God. And do you remember what Pontius Pilate said with regard to Jesus? Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. Jesus was an innocent man, wasn't he? But these people, and these people put to death an innocent man. And Peter said, look, I want you to know something. You are guilty. You put the Son of God to death. How would that have made you feel? I suspect there were probably any number of folks on that occasion who wept. They were convicted. You know, sometimes we engage in actions that we know are wrong. We say things, we do things. And then when what we've done comes to the fore, it hits us with full force. We hang our head. At times we shed tears. And we acknowledge our wrongdoing. These people were convicted. They were guilty of the death of the very Son of God. Is there any greater crime? How would you like to have that etched on your tombstone? That you had a part in the crucifixion of Jesus. And so, here's what Peter said. It was a powerful message, but it was a pardoning message. Because Peter said, repent. 
And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now let me just pause here for a minute. When these people, convicted as they were, cried out, what shall we do? Peter didn't say, let me just tell you what. You don't have one hope. You don't have any hope of redemption, any hope of pardon. Doesn't what Peter, doesn't what Peter says on Pentecost Day say something about the grace, mercy, love, and compassion of God? Didn't God talk about in Jeremiah chapter 31 a covenant that He would enact through the death of His Son? And didn't God say with regard to that covenant, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. This was a message of pardon. So when they asked, what shall we do? Peter said, let me tell you, here's exactly what you need to do. Now I want to move from that, and we're going to talk more about what they were instructed to do in this second point. I want to talk about the membership that was produced. I want to begin by emphasizing the fact that the saved, and Peter's talking about what they needed to do, and Luke is going to record for people of all ages, all generations, he's going to record what they did to become among the saved. So here it is. Listen again. They want to know, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That's not about what they were supposed to do. That is exactly what they were instructed to do, wasn't it? I was talking to Jared this past week. I think he'd been to camp a week or so ago. And he said they were talking about what Jesus taught with regard to baptism, as well as what they did in the first century to become New Testament Christians. And he said the young people ask a question. Their question was, isn't it interesting that in the first century, in contrast today, people didn't question the necessity of being baptized into Christ. That is, that is an astute observation. In the first century, those people didn't question, they didn't quibble over being baptized into Christ as people do today. Jesus, as you well know, and we talk about being baptized into Christ, why do you think Peter said, repent and be baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of sins? Because in order to enjoy the blessings of forgiveness, we have to come in contact with the blood of Jesus, don't we? That blood was shed in death. And the only way that we can appropriate the blood of Jesus is by going where it was shed. In John 19, verse 34 and verse 35, John said that Jesus shed His blood in death on Calvary's cross. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, Know ye not that all we who are baptized into Christ 
We're baptized into His death. When we're baptized into the death of Christ, we contact the blood of Christ. Now we live in a day and time when a lot of people want to wave off the importance of New Testament baptism. Well, wonder why the Apostle Peter didn't. Because he was speaking what God inspired him to say. He was under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, as were the other apostles. As I said a minute ago, Peter didn't say about what they were supposed to do. He said exactly what they were supposed to do. And didn't Jesus say in Mark 16, 16, He that believes, number one, and is baptized, number two, shall be saved, number three. That's pretty easy to understand, isn't it? Isn't that exactly what Peter said? Well, why didn't the Apostle Peter say, number one, you need to believe that Jesus is the Christ? Because he already said they believed in the Christ. He already talked about the miracles and wonders and signs which they, which they had observed throughout the ministry of Christ. They knew who Jesus was. They knew that He was, as Peter said, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Peter told them, all right, you want to be saved? You want, you want the remedy for sin? Here it is. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. When we're baptized into Christ, it is then and only then that we come in contact with the blood of Jesus. And you can't be saved without the blood of Christ, can you? Didn't Paul write in Ephesians 1 verse 7, In Him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Let me ask this question. I hear a lot of people on the radio, I hear some people on television. When they come to the close of their message, they start talking about accepting the Lord Jesus Christ into the heart. And typically they'll say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bow your head with me and recite this prayer. When you say this prayer, accepting the Lord Jesus into your heart, asking forgiveness, what will God do? He'll pardon you. Isn't that what they teach? Could I ask a question? Why don't they just say what Peter said? That is the apostles' doctrine, isn't it? When we talk about what a person must do to be saved, it is either biblical or it's not. The only way to get into Christ is to be baptized, and salvation is in Christ. That's what Paul said, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saved are in Christ. And the only way to get into Christ is to be baptized into Christ. Galatians chapter 3. You're all sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So these people were told exactly what to do to become New Testament Christians, weren't they? They were baptized for what purpose? For the remission of sins. They weren't saved first and baptized later. That's not what the text says. They were baptized and then they were saved. The saved, according to Luke, 
The saved are in Christ, and secondly, they're in the church of Christ. That is, they are in the body of Christ. Now, when the apostle, when the apostle Peter made the good confession in Matthew chapter 16, remember Jesus asked the question, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus wanted to know, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus then said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood is not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I also say unto you, that is unto Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. The church is the kingdom of God, isn't it? And in Matthew 16, in verse 19, Jesus said to the apostles that they would be given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Keys signify authority, don't they? You can take keys and open a building. Spiritually speaking, Peter and the other apostles received the keys to the kingdom. They unlocked the doors to the kingdom of God. So what Peter said is, you need to repent, be baptized. When you do that, you walk right into the kingdom of God. The saved are in the church. Now, there are a lot of folks in the world today that will tell you, you don't need to be a member of the church to go to heaven. As a matter of fact, you can be a part of of Christ, enjoy the blessings of salvation, and you don't have to have anything to do with organized religion, or for that matter, with the church. Look at verse 47. Verse 47, the Bible says, The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Well, according to Luke, the saved are where? They're in the church. How many churches were there in the first century? Had you had the opportunity to just walk up to somebody that had just been baptized into Christ? Verse 41 tells us, Those who gladly received His Word were about 3,000 in number. So let's just say there are multitudes of people rushing around you. And you run up to one of those people and you say, Oh, by the way, what church do you belong to? What would they have said? Would they have identified one of the mainline denominations that we all know about today? Why? Because there were no denominations. The church of Christ is pre-denominational. When Jesus said that He would establish the church, it was and is singular in nature. Furthermore, it belongs to whom? Belongs to Jesus. That's why it wears His name, doesn't it? So the saved are in Christ and they are in the church of Christ. Well, how did they get in the church of Christ? They were baptized into Christ. I want you to see something very quickly with me, just very quickly before we close, and we'll pick up here next week, Lord willing. But look at Colossians chapter 2 for a moment. In Colossians chapter 2, listen, if you would, to the Apostle Paul. I want to begin, first of all, by looking at chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 12, Paul said, Giving thanks to the Father who has made us meet to be partakers or qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He said, He's delivered us out of the power of darkness. That is, when people obey the gospel, they are delivered out of the world. 
And Paul said they are translated into the kingdom of the Son of Almighty God. They're translated into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So they are delivered out of the power of darkness. They're translated into the kingdom of God. It is in that sphere that they enjoy redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's exactly what we said. Now drop down chapter 2. In chapter 2, listen to Paul in verse 11. Paul said, In Him, that is in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. In the Old Testament, circumcision was literally the cutting away of skin. Paul here is not talking about physical circumcision. He's talking about spiritual circumcision. A spiritual operation, if you please. He said, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God, or through the operation of God. When we're baptized into Jesus Christ, God performs spiritual surgery on us, doesn't He? He operates on us. Well, what does He do? He cuts away our sins. It's what Paul's saying. Who raised Him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He is made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So just very quickly in summation, what then is Paul saying? Paul's saying that when you were baptized into Christ, your sins were cut away. You died to the love and the practice of sin. You were buried with Him in baptism. You've risen to walk in newness of life. When you obeyed the gospel, God delivered you out of the out of that domain called the world, the power of darkness. And God has translated you into the spiritual kingdom known as the church. It's His body. Well, how many bodies are there? There's one body and one spirit, even as you're called, and one hope of your calling. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is the head of the body, Colossians 1.18. In closing, look at Ephesians chapter 5. With regard to the saved, being in the church, and the significance of being in the church, the blood-bought body of Jesus Christ. I said a moment ago, the saved are in Christ, the saved are in the church of Christ. Well, why then is it imperative that people today be in the church of Christ? When I talk about the church of Christ, I don't want you to think that I'm talking about a denomination. When I say the church of Christ, I mean the church that belongs to Christ. We could use church of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. We could just be called the church, Acts chapter 2, verse 47. But listen to Paul in Ephesians 5, verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and He is the Savior of the body. If Jesus is the Savior of the body and the saved are in the body, then what does that mean about people who aren't in the body? Are they saved or lost? Saved or lost? They're lost. How do I know that? Because that's what the Bible teaches. That's why it is imperative that we preach Christ and Him crucified. That we preach not just Christ, but that we preach about the church that He purchased with His blood. Because when people obey the gospel, they become a member of that body. And so when we talk about being a member of the Lord's church, we are a part of the body of Christ. 
We are a part of the blood-bought body of Christ. And Jesus has promised to save that blood-bought body. It might be that you're here tonight and you're not a member of the church. You're not in Christ because you haven't done what Peter said to do in order to have your sins forgiven. There's only one way to be forgiven. That is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, to repent of your sins, confess His name before others, and then to be buried with Him in baptism so that all your sins can be washed away. Acts twenty two sixteen. When you do that, God will then put you in the church. And if you're faithful unto death, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here tonight and you're not a member of the church, you're not a part of the body that Jesus has promised to save, I would strongly encourage you Come to Christ tonight. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful to the cause of Christ, you need the prayers of the church, would you not come home tonight? Let us pray with you and for you. God will abundantly pardon as we stand and sing.